Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a national security podcast focused on innovation, technology policy, and their impacts on our national security and foreign affairs. I'm your host, Guy Snodgrass. Joining me is co-host Mark Solomons. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing good, Guy. Good morning. Glad to be here. We've got an exciting episode for everyone today. We've had this buildup. We've talked about the, we had a special episode about the firing of Navy Captain Brett Crozier. We've talked about the importance in our previous podcast of the relationship that needs to exist between the American media and the American military, the fact that there has to be those lines of communication. And one of the things we highlighted during that conversation is the importance of that line of communication because of the civilian control of America's military. That's a bedrock foundation for who we are as a nation and ensuring that the military is working for the appointed and elected civilian leadership. So to help us with that discussion, we've been lucky to get on the line with us, uh, two experts in this field. We've got Dr. Pauline shanks Karin, the Stockdale Chair and Professor of Professional Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. She's a trained philosopher and ethicist, and she's earned her Ph.D. from Temple University. And she has a new book out right now called On Obedience, which is a uh, in-depth look at the civilian-military relationship. Also joining us is Dr. Doyle Hodges. He's the executive editor for the Texas National Security Review. He's also a senior editor at War on the Rocks. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He rose through the ranks over the course of about a 21-year career to become a Navy commander. He held command of a guided missile destroyer. And after leaving the Navy, he earned his Ph.D. from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs in 2018. And he just most recently wrote a fantastic op-ed at War on the Rocks about the Navy's crisis of special trust and confidence because of the breakdown in communication that existed between Captain Crozier, and Acting Secretary of the Navy, Modley. So, Mark, I think we've got a good episode lined up. Yeah, I'm excited, guys. This should be good. What are you hoping to hear from uh, Pauline and from Doyle? Well, first, obviously, from uh, Doyle, he just came out with that great article in War on the Rocks, Navy Crisis of Special Trust and Confidence. So hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that. And, of course, Pauline, uh, she's you know one of our former colleagues up there at the Naval War College, doing a great job up there with her specialty, uh, civil relations, and her book on obedience, which, which I know... I think you're going to get into it with there. So I'm looking forward to this discussion today. Before we started recording, Mark and I were talking about just the importance of this conversation. Certainly, as we know, throughout history, things ebb and flow. Things that feel incredibly important and sometimes even like we're in a time of crisis now are not necessarily brand new things or things we've experienced in the past, whether it's the past years or past decades. This period of time does feel unique in that over the last two to three years, we've experienced an increasing what I would say is politicization of the military, the fact that a military that's prided itself in what we call being apolitical has started getting drawn into some more partisan food fights. You're seeing military commanders now increasingly going on partisan news networks to talk, to uh, advocate, which is a, a break from the norm. Normally, you're not used to seeing uniformed military members do such things. You've seen President Trump directly jump in with the pardoning of members of the military accused of, of being part of war crimes, such as uh, Navy Chief and SEAL Eddie Gallagher, also uh, a Army major who had also been accused of war crimes. So he steps in and pardons them against the recommendation of the services from, from which they were drawn. Uh, you've seen also a uh, just you know a lot of military members in, in some cases going directly to the media to try their case in a court of public opinion as opposed to through their chain of command. This will be exciting. So everybody dust off their uh, sieve mill and hunting in a book there, and let's get ready for a great discussion. A quick reminder for our audience that Dr. Pauline shanks Karn is actually a currently serving member of the U.S. Naval War College, and as such, her opinions are her own. They don't reflect either the official position of the Department of the Navy or the United States Naval War College. All right, here we go. Okay, so uh, Pauline Doyle, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Holding the Line 
Pauline, I want to start with you and just, if you don't mind, I mean, I think for a lot of our listeners, when you talk about civilian military relationships, it's a term most people are not familiar with. And that's unfortunate because it's so important to how the military operates and how the American public interacts with it. So if you don't mind, maybe just for our listeners, give us a little bit of insight into what that relationship means and why it's important. Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I'll start with the military side. So the military is a profession um, and that has a specific uh, definition but one of the marks of a profession is that it serves the common good. It serves society. So the military, at least in the United States, um, uh, serves the state uh, and is in fact controlled or answers to the civilian political leadership. So the president of the United States is commander in chief. We have a civilian secretaries of the army, navy, so on. And so the idea is that there's this relationship the civilian authorities decide when, whether, and, and how we'll go to war or the military is used. And then the idea is the military uh, acts as an agent for the state or acts on behalf of the state. It's not the military that, that makes those decisions ultimately. They can give advice, uh, and they often do, about what ought to be done and what's possible and what's not. Uh, but at the end of the day, the final authority for the use of the military resides with the civilians and the civilians are in a sense the military's boss so when i talk to my students i who are mostly military officers i say you work for me in the sense that i'm a member of the american population and my civilian <clears throat> representatives and appointed officials uh, work for the government of that represent me so it's a question of that relationship. Now, the relationship is, is important because we want a smooth uh, functioning relationship, which isn't to say there'll never be disagreements, but we want the two parties to be able to work together to affect the best ends for the United States, to protect and defend the United States and their citizens and their interests. So how this relationship works out is, is important and over, say, the last in particular, the last 40 years, there have been some, some amount of friction in the relationship, whether that's during the Clinton administration over Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or, you know, over uh, various conflicts like uh, the, the second Gulf War, the intervention in Iraq in 2003, those kinds of things. So it's important to have a good working relationship. Two things came to my mind. First is, that relationship becomes critically important, like you mentioned, the civilian control of the military, because you vest so much power into the hands of the military members, right? I mean, a significant amount of literal firepower and capability. And so that trust and confidence from the civilian leadership to the military becomes critically important. And that's been a bedrock of uh, American principles for a very long time. It also reminds me of a conversation I'd had with uh, Secretary Mattis and some others on staff as we were looking at some policy changes and recommendations for the White House. And that was just that a lot of times when you sign up, it makes intuitive sense, but you don't necessarily really reflect on the fact that you, that you are giving up some of your civil liberties for the privilege of serving in uniform. There are things that you don't necessarily think about that as you become more senior, you realize, hey, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a lack of maneuvering space. So thank you. Doyle, you know, that brings up a great point, which is the, the fast moving news cycle that we've had recently with the United States Navy. You yourself, as a retired Navy commander, you've you served both in uniform and now you're, you're a practitioner when it comes to civilian military relationships uh, from the educational side of the house and, and from the editorial side of the house. You know, and you also had a phenomenal op-ed that I would, I would ask everyone to take time to go to look at. War on the Rocks, it's about the special trust and confidence that is required within military circles. So if you don't mind, maybe just a quick overview of, of what you mentioned in the article, uh, specifically because of some of the issues that were raised with the firing of Navy Captain Brett Crozier, the commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And then subsequently, since you wrote that article, the resignation of Acting Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley. Sure. Well, thank you for the kind words about the article. The special trust and confidence question is an interesting one because it implicates both the leadership side and the civ mill side. And I'll, I'll circle back around to the civ mill side in a moment. But as your question, just a quick synopsis of the article, I, I think one of the things I would emphasize about it first is that there is so much that we do not know yet about what actually happened there. We don't have visibility into what communications preceded Captain Crozier's letter. We don't have visibility into the conversations between Captain Crozier and his chain of command. 
So an effort to try to draw a definitive judgment about the leadership aspects or whether the relief was warranted is really hampered by what it is that we don't know. What I tried to point out in my article is that from what is publicly available, Captain Crozier's actions seem to meet the criteria that would tend to build the notion of trust and confidence. He displayed candor, he showed competence in his responses, including drawing on expert advice, and he showed a commitment to his people as well as an awareness of the need to balance that versus the requirement for mission accomplishment. He specifically formulated his concerns as a balancing between the risk to personnel and a risk to mission. In contrast, Secretary Moodley's responses seemed to display less candor. There were a number of instances where he seemed to make statements that, while not untrue, were chosen to represent things in a more negative light than might have been warranted. And I think the most significant one for me was his choice to characterize the San Francisco Chronicle as Crozier's hometown paper and to suggest that somehow that had some role in how this came to light. Um, first of all, Crozier's from Santa Rosa, California, which is about 50 miles north of uh, San Francisco. It's like suggesting that someone from Bridgeport, Connecticut, their hometown paper is the New York Times. Um, but secondly, there's no indication that Crozier was involved in the leak of it. If that comes out, that certainly changes the calculus, but we have no indication in the public domain that's there right now. That pattern continued in a lot of Modley's comments, and I, I pointed that out. I think, as you mentioned, the subsequent developments, the fact that Secretary Modley felt it necessary to travel to the TR and to justify his decision, and when he did so, he responded in a relatively emotional manner that insulted and lashed out at Crozier reflected that the decisions that were being made appeared to be more about retribution or vindictiveness for the embarrassment that came down on the Navy than they were about the specific reasons that were given regarding the channels by which the letter was released, the possibility that classified information had been divulged in the letter or things like that. So those, those were the things that, that I focused on there. And so really my letter focused on special trust and confidence more in its leadership aspect than its civ mill aspect. But from the Civ Mill perspective, I, I think it would be really, really difficult to underestimate the importance of that trust and confidence. Samuel Huntington kind of famously and a little bit simplistically defined a profession as comprising expertise, responsibility, and corporateness. That responsibility is the notion that experts police themselves according to special ethical standards because they're given moral permission to do things that other people aren't. Doctors can cut people for therapeutic purposes. Lawyers can represent positions that they may not believe because it's what they're required to do for the defense of their client. Military officers are given permission to harm people in the service of the nation. One of the things that differentiates the military profession from other professions, though, is that ordinarily that responsibility and that special knowledge means that only one member of profession is able to judge what happens or the actions of another member of the profession. But the nature of the military profession that we work exclusively for the state and we are under the control of civilians means that of necessity the performance of military officers is judged by civilians and must be judged by civilians if we're going to be controlled democratically and so that trust and confidence between the uniformed military the civilian leadership and the american people is absolutely critical to making that relationship work right no, that's great doyle and I, i'm going to turn it back over here to guy in a second to cover some of those topics but i just want to I mentioned, you know, the title of your article, A Navy's Crisis. For our listeners, can you kind of sum the crisis piece up as opposed to, you know, why it's a, not an issue or a dilemma, but rises to that level of crisis? I think that's very important to understand, you know, for, for everyone, why this has risen to the level of a crisis. Sure. And that's a good point. And I, I chose to sort of begin the chronology with the collisions in the summer of 2017 that killed 17 sailors. The Navy's choice to follow up with criminal charges against the chain of command on that was highly unusual. Uh, and they seem to focus exclusively on individual accountability rather than on systemic problems that may have contributed. Although to be fair, there have been some efforts to address some of the manning issues and readiness issues that contributed. But this is a pattern that actually goes back before that. You can go back to the incident at Farsi Island when an unprepared unit was sent with a mission that was inappropriate for the tasking and the training that they had, and they wound up causing an international incident by going into Iranian waters and ultimately being taken into Iranian custody. You know, it, it doesn't receive a lot of attention, but we lost a U.S. Navy vessel, fortunately no sailors, when the USS Guardian, a minesweeper, ran aground on a well-charted reef in the Philippines. Again, readiness issues underlying that. 
we have a pattern of reliefs of senior personnel, sometimes at what seemed to be precipitously. The president of the Naval War College was relieved by the chief of naval operations before the investigation into his conduct was complete. It's a little bit embarrassing that when the investigation was completed, they said, really, actually, for the most part, there was no major issue. There were, there were a couple of minor things, but nothing that would ordinarily justify relief. And of course, you have the shadow of the Fat Leonard scandal, the Glenn Defense Marine Asia scandal that resulted in the incarceration of several flag officers, the investigation of almost over half of the, the flag population. So the, the crises of Navy leadership as it relates to ethical issues and issues that implicate trust and confidence dates back a decade. You bring up a great point and, and Mark's question there about the your use of the word crisis in the title. Uh, I actually agree with that because when I had written the book Holding the Line, one of the things that I cited up front and center was the concern that there is this, we're in this period of overly politicizing the military. Since the conclusion of the Vietnam War, the American military has been widely perceived as being the most trusted institution in America because largely it's an apolitical institution. Um, it can be trusted by the, by the American public that vests so much trust to it, like Pauline mentioned, that, uh, you know, that it's not taking political sides, that it's just remaining professional and apolitical as it carries out its actions around the globe and on behalf of, of the American citizenry it serves. So when you start seeing a lot of these, uh, the tipping of the scales away from professionalism or you begin to increasingly politicize members of the military, I think that's a concern. And we've seen in recent weeks even where uh, senior leaders of the US military have been asked to go on Sean Hannity, they're going on opinion shows, on largely uh, partisan shows. And there's been some concern expressed about what that can mean for that trust and confidence with the American public. And, and Pauline, I was reading some of your postings on your excellent blog, and you had a really interesting one that I saw that was basically talking about dishonoring our honorable profession because of the way that some of the pardons and other situations are being held or handled. Can you, can you maybe walk us through your, your thoughts there? Um, yeah, so that piece was a, a version of an op-ed that, that appeared after the Gallagher case co-written with um, my ethics counterpart at NPS, BJ Strasser. And for, for our listeners, and, real quick, would you mind maybe just explaining who Gallagher is and, and why it was important? Yeah, so Gallagher was, uh, he's a, he's a Navy SEAL, uh, enlisted, senior enlisted, who was accused of war crimes, not to get into too graphic for your audience, what exactly he was accused of doing. He was accused of war crimes, presumably turned in by his own people, um, and had appealed on Fox News. Uh, and uh, some other outlets had appealed for remediation from the president. And ultimately, the president did give him remediation. And part of the case was also a, a question about whether Gallagher would be allowed to, because of the remediation, uh, keep his, uh, what's called a trident pin, which is the symbol of his belonging to the SEALs and belonging to the profession. Uh, and this, this back and forth ultimately results in the firing uh, or resignation, depending on your perspective, of Secretary Spencer, who was the Secretary of the Navy at the time. Um, created a huge firestorm. Part of this is a question about whether the profession can police itself. The president was reaching down uh, and uh, exerting control over what would normally be an inter a matter that's internal to the profession. Um, so that, that was the issue in the case. Um, and in terms of what you were just saying, I would just, if I could, tweak the conversation a little bit. So in my book, I make a distinction between political and partisan. So usually we do use the term political and apolitical to describe the military, but I don't think that's that's not really what we mean because the military engages in war which is by definition since we've all read Clausewitz uh, a political act so I prefer and I really think the issue is the military becoming partisan which is taking a side on uh, political issues so I think that that is the concern because historically the idea is the military profession serves whatever political administration or partisan administration wins the elections or is control in control at any given time. And they are not supposed to weigh in on, uh, on partisan issues. That's why there's the Hatch Act. Uh, that's why those of us who work for the government have to be careful about what we say about political matters with proper disclaimers and, and all of that. So I think that concern isn't just 
participating in political activities because members of the military can still vote. Their freedom of speech is, is, is restricted and other kinds of freedoms are, are restricted. Uh, but the, the real issue is whether or not they are partisan. And so the point about going on certain opinion shows, the point about um, you know, how, how the discourse about the pardons went forward was highly partisan and, and the disagreement about it broke down along partisan lines. After uh, my colleague and I wrote that op-ed, there was lots of um, unpleasant mail from people who disagreed with us. So it was a highly sort of charged issue. And that's really an issue about the profession. And I think this case, the Crozier uh, being relieved and, and Modley's actions is also uh, perhaps it's a little less partisan because there's maybe more more agreement, uh, but it still it still definitely falls into that sort of is, is it about politics and and partisanship or is it really about the profession? And there were there were certainly to your point about uh, one that's an excellent distinction about the difference between what is partisan and what is political. Uh, so thank you very much for making that distinction. That's important for our listeners. I'd say also. From the, from the military and the active duty community, one of the things that was most concerning about the, uh, the Navy SEAL you mentioned, Chief Eddie Gallagher, also with Major Matt Goldstein. But basically he, he and, and Chief Gallagher were routinely going on Fox News and, and pleading their case about, you know, so basically you're, you, everything from tainting the jury pool to going directly to the American public, going directly to campaign to the president, you're circumventing your chain of command. And I think from talking with members of the military still serving, the thing that really bothered them the most was that when the profession of arms, when their respective services had done a, an investigation, had said that the, that the allegations were substantiated and, and merited corrective action for that to be, that whole process to be circumvented largely because it became public in a very large sense. And to your point, it became very partisan in nature. Uh, seemed to kind of cut the legs out, out from underneath both the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy to self-police, to maintain those professional standards. And so, Doyle, I'm kind of curious, you know, your take, whether it's active duty military members going on Fox News to talk, or, you know, what do you see here with regards to that civilian-military relationship, and as you just talked about, the special trust and confidence involved with leadership? So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with what Pauline said, but I would also expand it just a little bit, because certainly we're concerned about partisanship and faction as it's defined in the current very highly polarized political debate. And that I think we saw clear evidence of in the Gallagher case. I think there were echoes of it in the Crozier case as well, because I don't think the case would have resonated as much had it not reproduced in miniature the same crisis that we were seeing nationally about the risk posed to people by the coronavirus and the responsibility of people to take corrective actions for it. But one of the other risks is that there can be political factions that are not associated with a political party. And if the military becomes one of those factions, that in itself is also quite risky. And I think this is one of the challenges. You mentioned the approval rating and the confidence rating in the military post-Vietnam. And it's unique. There's no other institution that has had as enduring and as high a confidence level. But you run a risk both that the military then starts to take actions not to damage that rather than to take the correct action. And that that very confidence level places undue pressure on political leaders to yield to the advice of military officers in a way that might be against their better judgment. So this is part of a larger conversation about the sort of deification or exaltation of the military within our society that doesn't necessarily always think very carefully about why it is that we're doing that. You know, at West Point, uh, Michael Robinson, who's an active duty army officer and a professor in the social department, has done some great work on trying to unpack the level of confidence in the military. And David Burbach, a professor at the Naval War College, has as well. One of the things they've uncovered is that there is increasingly a partisan dimension politically to this confidence in the military. That's very concerning because it also means that it's likely very brittle. When something happens that takes a military readiness issue, a military professional issue, and casts it in a partisan light, then you also risk that the 
confidence of the American people in this really polarized environment could turn very quickly. And if you have a military that has come to expect this confidence as their right, the effects of that on the relationships between the military, the civilians, and the people could be really bad. Yeah, I've got a question for all of us there. And uh, I know we've been talking a lot of civil with the people in the military, but let's expand it out to a civil relations to society writ large. Why should you know Mr. or Mrs. Civilian care about civil relations and how it relates to their military? Pauline first. Um, sure, that's a good question. I mean, the part of it is that this is part of our democratic system, right? That there's a, you know, there are other countries that don't have civilian control of the military. And in other countries, we've, we've seen various political actions in, in including coups. Um, and so the idea is we have this system to avoid those, those kinds of uh, concerns. Uh, the other piece is that, uh, you know, as I point out in my book, is that people who are members of the military are also citizens at the same time. They serve a dual role. And, and so for the average citizen, uh, this is about concern for their fellow citizens, not, uh, not just that the military is a separate sort of Spartan class that's off on their own and that has no uh, real interaction with American society. These are people who live next door to us. They're members of our family. Um, they're members of our community. And as we've seen with the uh, really the epidemic of suicide, PTSD, and moral injury, uh, what happens in the military uh, affects the rest of us. Um, so those are people in our communities who are, who are uh, struggling and it impacts families, it impacts their communities. Um, there is also part of the civil relationship that citizens have a moral obligation to uh, uphold their end of the contract, which is to influence their political leaders to make sure the military is not misused. So when the military goes to battle, uh, when Gallagher or Goldstein or Lawrence does what they do, they're doing it in my name. War crimes were committed in my name, in Doyle's name, in all of our names. So at the end of the day, we're all morally uh, responsible for what happens. So I think for the average citizen, it's something it's important to pay attention to because of that, but also because we have an obligation of care to the members of the military. We have, we make contract with them. We say, you join the military, you defend us. We are going to make sure your life is, 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 and your talents are, are well used and, and not wasted. Um, and especially if we think about the level of carnage we saw in World War One, without a lot of strategic effect, I think that notion of the contract uh, is important. Also, I think in American society, it goes back to Vietnam, right? That people, we really want to make sure that if, if um, soldiers and sailors are being sent somewhere in my name, that it's actually a good idea and that we're actually keeping, you know, the civilian part of the agreement with the military. It's not just, it's a contract, it goes two ways. It's not just what the military owes us, it's what we owe the military. Wow, great. That was a perfect, Pauline. Doyle, is there anything you want to add? Anything on, on the all-volunteer force as well as how that ties into society writ large? Yeah, I, I would echo everything Pauline said. And, and in context of the all-volunteer force, I would just characterize it. We often hear the phrase used about the cost in blood and treasure of what it is that we do. And, you know, that's, that's the critical part of it is, you know, I used to tell when I was teaching at the Naval Academy, tell my midshipmen that that day, Somewhere in America, someone was putting the most precious thing in their life, their son or daughter, onto a bus to go to boot camp, and that in a few months, that sailor was going to be their responsibility. And the American people have to have trust that those who lead their military are doing so out of the right reasons and for the right purposes and with appropriate care and responsibility for those who've been entrusted to their charge. You, you can't get more fundamental than that on the personnel side. And then the military is a remarkably expensive undertaking. You know, the Navy in particular, ships are incredibly complex, incredibly expensive things to buy. And we're asking the American people to pay for them at a time when we have any number of other challenges. I believe that those things are necessary to execute the strategy that we've laid out. But if we're going to make the case to the American people that this is a worthwhile expenditure of their financial resources and more worthwhile than other choices that they can make with it, 
then we also have to maintain that trust that it will be used appropriately by personnel who are leading it only for the good of the country, not for the advancement of any faction within the country or any personal gain or anything like that. And as you mentioned, Mark, we are an all-volunteer force. If we ever break that trust to the point where it can't be rebuilt, then we may well find that we lack people coming in who we need in order to defend and conduct the nation's business. Pauline, let's switch back to you real quick. I love the title of your book, On Obedience. And as I was reading through some of the material that covers your book, you know, it, it talks about some of the, the way that military members make decisions, how they carry out the orders given by those appointed over them, uh, or more senior in the chain of command. You know, one, could you kind of define for us just your thoughts on how that system works? For example, if you have a national command authority, you have the President of the United States who directs a course of action. What is the role of a military member to carry out those instructions? How much, if you believe something might be cross purposes with either the professionalism of your service or not in the best interests of the country, what, how do military members provide feedback? Um, yeah, so the argument in the book is that obedience is not an absolute virtue. So it's not good in and of itself. Obedience is there to facilitate uh, certain ends or goals, both in the military and in civilian society. So on my argument, uh, obedience is justified or is a virtue if it's a, a command given by someone with legitimate authority uh, and you are doing it voluntarily and in intentionally uh, for good ends, right? So I think it's incumbent on every member of the military as well as every civilian, because the book addresses both, to take a look at the orders or commands or things that they're asked to do and ask some hard questions. You don't give up all of your moral agency when you join the military. So uh, when people committed war crimes at Milai or um, in other places, we still hold them morally and legally responsible, even though they perhaps were told to do that. Um, and so there's some moral agency that, that we all retain. And so I think it's important to think about this. Now that said, under most conditions, particularly in the military, obedience will be presumptive and you need it in order for the military to work efficient, efficiently. So what we're talking about are probably exceptions to the rule, but there may be times, and perhaps the Crozier cases is a time, when there seem to be other considerations that, um, that are more important, uh, often that is human life, um, where we may need to stop a second and say, is this the right thing to do? And it may be the case that either outright disobedience or something less than obedience, and in the book I, I outline a taxonomy that it's more of a range of, of considerations, not an either or, that may be important. And some of that may be giving feedback to your leaders. And sometimes even if you've given those feedback, that feedback to leaders, it's, it seems that Crozier in fact did that, expressed his concern and, and uh, at least what we think happened is that the leaders were like, no, this is how we're gonna go about it. And, and he, he disagreed, right? So there may be times when we expect people to do that. So one thing to think about, I talk about in the book is, is the My Lai massacre and the actions of helicopter pilot Hugh Thompson, which certainly count as disloyalty, if not disobedience. And at the time he was not a popular dude, um, but now we look back and say, no, he did the right thing, right? So that's the kind of thing, we're talking about probably exceptions to the rule. On the civilian side, this is when we engage in civil disobedience. For the most part, we obey the laws. Uh, but there may be times, like during the civil rights movement, when we say, no, there are other considerations and these laws are, are wrong or headed towards a, a, a problematic end. Something that is discussed widely within uh, active duty military circles is that concept of falling on your sword. That if you receive a, a command or you're, you're instructed to carry out a course of action that you believe is morally or ethically or professionally improper, now you're faced with that choice. You can either, of course, blindly carry it out, or you can say, based on my best judgment, sir, ma'am, this is not the right course. And if they say, I don't care, do it, then you can say, look, I, I need to take myself out of the equation. Somewhat like we might see with Captain Crozier, he likely uh, knew that writing a very formal four-page memorandum would certainly, if not lead to his relief, then certainly expose him to greater scrutiny that could uh, ultimately lead that direction. And you know, I want to use that as a bridge, something that came up 
a lot when I worked for Secretary Mattis was this concern that when you take something as profound and as widely destructive as the employment of nuclear weapons, and there was a lot of hand-wringing that nuclear weapons are so unique because you kind of, in some respects, you cut out a lot of the people in the middle of that decision-making loop. If President Trump says, I would like to employ nuclear weapons, or any president says, I want to employ nuclear weapons, it goes straight over to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and it is now executed. And there's not, or at least the concern has been postulated, that there's less, there are fewer stop gaps or fewer decision-making opportunities within that pipeline than there would be for the employment of conventional force. So I'm wondering, is that something you or Doyle have ever considered or studied? And, and what are your views on that when it comes to that civilian-military relationship and to your point about uh, obedience within military circles? I'll chime in briefly on that. Pauline may have uh, more profound thoughts than I do there. But, you know, I, I think this discussion of nuclear command and control in particular kind of reminds me of the discussion of congressional term limits, is I think we want some sort of systemic or institutional protection against our judgment about who it is who we've put in these positions. And yet the authority to do these things pretty much has to be inherent in the positions because of the nature of what it is that they do. So the reason that nuclear command and control is concentrated in the president is because of the timelines that are associated with it, the political nature of the weapons, and the destructiveness of the weapon. The president represents the choice of the American people as the commander-in-chief and the person responsible for defending the country and for American foreign policy. If the concern is that we've elected a president who we feel is likely to issue an order that is unwise or unlawful regarding nuclear weapons, that reflects more on the judgment of the American people than it does on the sufficiency of checks on the office of presidency. And if you put checks on the office, those are going to apply equally to a president in whom we have more trust and confidence if you are someone who lacks trust and confidence in this president. The whole issue of when to disobey is a challenging one because, you know, as Peter Fever has pointed out, the nature of civil military relations is that civilians have the right to be wrong. But as James Dubik has pointed out, the nature of decisions that you make in the military has moral weight because you're making choices that endanger or spend the lives of the people you're charged to lead and care for. And so this isn't an easy and soluble thing. I, I think one of the other interesting distinctions that Pauline raised, though, is the distinction between disobedience and disloyalty. There's no indication that Captain Crozier disobeyed anyone in his chain of command. But there certainly was an indication that he was perceived to be disloyal by not agreeing with their perception of it and by making his disagreement public. And I think it's easy sometimes to associate disloyalty with disobedience, and they aren't the same. Um, yeah, I would just echo what Doyle, uh, Doyle said about the, the nuclear issue. I think, you know, and it's something I talk about in my book, um, and it's also something that revisionists within the just war tradition, like Jeff McMahon and Helen Pro, you know, wrestle with. There's, I think there's a question about whether we are, uh, as American citizens, trying to outsource moral judgment to other people. And then when other people don't make the moral judgment that we want them to, then we get mad. Um, and I think that's deeply problematic. So I think the American people need to understand they are, they're responsible for the choices that they make. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece about disobedience and, and disloyalty is, is important. Um, and in, in the Crozier case, which I'm writing on right now, I, there's been a lot made of the fact that he went outside of the chain of command and that he went outside of sort of what are really bureaucratic practices right? Um, and that that's what the issue is. And I think part of what we have to think about there is, at the end of the day, was he being loyal to the profession? Was he being loyal to caring about his own people? There's sort of conflicting issues here, right? Clearly, Secretary Modley uh, thought this was a betrayal, both of Crozier's own crew and of himself. So there's a, so I agree with Doyle that there's is really more of a loyalty issue than a, a disobedience issue. It's not clear that he disobeyed any any orders. It is clear he went, you know, he went against norm, bureaucratic norms and practices. So the question is, is that a matter of being unprofessional? I'm going to argue in the piece I'm writing that it's not. Um, it, it could also be viewed as disloyal. Clearly, it was viewed as disloyal by. Uh, Secretary Modley. If I can uh, actually piggyback on something that Pauline raised there about the notion of outsourcing those judgments. 
you know, a lot of my research focused on the role of law and legal reasoning in military decision making. And I think there has been a tendency at times to address whether someone broke a law. In fact, when Modley spoke to the crew of the TR, he suggested that if Crozier had revealed classified information, that that was a meaningful breach of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And I think it's important to make the distinction between what is legal and what is moral. Legality provides a floor. And the question of what you can or can't do legally in terms of disobedience rests on the notion of a manifestly unlawful order, something that a person of ordinary sense and understanding would know to be wrong if they got it. But boy, there's a whole range of orders that are unwise, ill-advised, immoral, or with which you just disagree that don't meet that standard of manifest unlawfulness. And one of the challenges when you talk about the requirement to disobey or when it is that you fall on your sword is that the more willing you are to do that, the more you've also undermined the notion of civil military relations and civilian control of the military. So it's not a simple calculus. No, that's uh, absolutely true. Both Pauline and Doyle, you guys provided some great answers. Uh, as we're winding down, we want to be respectful of your all's time there. Let's uh, just take a, one more question there and, and put the uh, civil relations in the larger context of history there and, and where do we think we're going? I mean, we've had ups and downs, you know, from our establishment, our, our republic through today. So do we think this is a, a, a one-off in our current event or do we think it'll get back towards more towards the center? Or is this just a abnorm abnormality or where do we see this going? Boy, I was hoping Pauline would jump on that one. You know, I, I don't have a good crystal ball on it, but when I take a look at the general trend of political polarization in the United States right now, and the tendency to make issues that don't objectively appear to have a partisan component into partisan causes. I don't think that augurs well for the future of civil military relations, because we're going to continue to draw our military from the American people who are polarized in those ways. And we're going to have issues that arise that will inevitably reflect credit or blame on civilian leaders. And that credit or blame will be spun for partisan purposes. And as it does so, you're going to draw uniformed and civilian military leaders into a partisan debate on issues that may be surprising because they don't appear to have a partisan component. And I think that's going to continue to pose a challenge to civil military relations. Um, I, I too uh, do not have a good crystal ball. I agree with everything Doyle just said. I think the polarization um, actually has, has been a feature of American society for quite some time and, and, and will continue uh, to be so. And I think the fact the military is so revered and respected as an institution makes the stakes higher. People want to be seen as having the military on its side. And I think you see this uh, when you have nominating conventions where uh, one wants to have retired flag officers or retired general officers or members of the military sort of endorsing or being seen to be associated with with a campaign, which I think is a tacit way to try to co-opt the military. Um, so I, I don't think that's a new phenomenon, but I think we're gonna continue to see that. And I think because the military is so respected that politically stakes are, are very high and there's a great incentive to sort of use them or be associated uh, with the virtues that are seen in the military. So I think, I think we also see this with, um, you know, arguments about veterans running for office, that somehow veterans are better suited to uh, be, be leaders because of their military experience. This is something I talk about in the book as well. Are, are, are veterans or members of the military sort of super citizens? Um, are they in, in a way better than the rest of us? Do they have more virtue than the rest of us? And this is an articulation that, uh, that you see a lot, especially in social media. So I think that's only, going to continue. I think um, if, I, if I go to my crystal ball, which I don't like to do as a philosopher, I would say that if there's a solution, part of it is that the citizenry has to step up and take more responsibility for the judgments that they're making. We need to stop outsourcing this stuff and stop expecting other people to make decisions because to the degree that average citizens can enter the discourse, that will, I think, dilute perhaps uh, the tendency to to outsource to, to veterans or to outsource to the military. So it might mitigate that a bit, but I think Doyle's absolutely right about the polarization. I think, I mean, it's just, it's clear that that's here to stay. We're deeply divided. 
to kind of wrap this all up, when you mentioned the use of admirals or generals who've been retired going to conventions, it's something that we actually brought up with the newly rising one stars and also the newly appointed SESs, meaning senior executive service members, when Secretary Mass would speak to them, he would, he would directly cite the fact that you had General John Allen at the Democratic National Convention speaking out very vocally on then-candidate Clinton's behalf. And then you also had, conversely, General Mike Flynn, U.S. Army retired, who was uh, chanting, lock her up at the Republican National Convention. Both of those things were cited as part of that increasingly partisan feel I think that's something that if you're a junior member of the military, you don't necessarily consider that if you happen to rise to the highest levels of your profession, that when you leave, uh, there is a bit of an expectation that you will refrain from entering into the type of conversations maybe general civilian population can still have access to. And there was a great quote, you know, of course, when, when you retire your uniform, you retire your tongue. And so that was something that admirals and generals have to be mindful of. But I want to thank uh, both uh, Dr. Pauline shanks Corin, Stockdale Chair, Professor of Military Professional Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College, as well as Dr. Doyle Hodges, the Executive Editor from the Texas National Security Review and also a Senior Editor at Warner Rocks. Thank you both very much for spending your morning with us. Great conversation and uh, really gained a lot from it. Thank you. Yes, thank you both. Thanks, Guy. All right, Mark. So a uh, great conversation there with Dr. Pauline shanks Karin from the U.S. Naval War College, also from Doyle Hodges, the executive editor at the Texas National Security Review. Certainly, you know, even though I had the opportunity, like yourself, to, to be at the Naval War College and, and study civilian military relationships, I still felt like I picked up some new things there from that conversation. Yeah, I mean, seeing it in practice now, especially with this uh, Crozier situation, we're all watching play out in real time there. Civil relations could not be more important uh, in this day and age. And I think both uh, Pauline and Doyle did a great job of capturing many of the issues that we are talking about on uh, previous episodes. And I was very uh, pleased to hear where they went with this discussion today. One thing that really stood out towards the end of our discussion was when Doyle talked about that in a increasing time of partisan tension, you're seeing a, a very strong polarization within the American society that, of course, our military draws its members from society. And so that kind of got me thinking about along the lines of, you know, how will that how does that impact conflict resolution between members of the military? If you start seeing increasingly polarized positions within the men and women in uniform, just like we're seeing between men and women out of uniform, do you think that that starts leading the military down a, down a road where it's going to be less effective? That That is a great uh, and fundamental question, Guy, and honestly, I, let's hope not, but, you know, it is certainly a possibility, which is why I think it's important that we continue to keep a civil relations in the forefront, and I know this is nothing new to every generation, you know, going back to the founding of our republic and throughout many of our conflicts throughout history, civil relations always rises its head, and it's important for uh, all leaders on both sides to, to keep it in perspective and make sure we... Uh, stay within the boundaries of you know, who works for who there. Obviously, a military working for the civilians. One thing I think that this episode continues to highlight is just the importance of our previous episode. When we talked with Laura Seligman and Chris Cervello, we were talking about that relationship that exists between members of the media and the military and just how critical those lines of communication are so that people better understand. But it also highlights just how dangerous that road can be because as we're seeing right now, the reason why civilian military relationships has really popped on the radar is because these issues, whether it's the president's pardoning of members of the military accused of war crimes, whether it's the political situation with Captain Crozier's firing, all that leads to a heightened awareness in the media. Things become, become partisan and polarized very fast and people becoming entrenched in their positions. And suddenly you can see the military getting dragged into a food fight. It had no intention of going to in the first place. So for those of you who are practitioners, those of you wearing the cloth of our country, and you're still on active duty, or maybe you're in the reserves or the guard, it's just a good reminder that to the maximum extent possible, although there's importance to have that relationship with the media, you still want to, of course, as we always do, work through your chain of command, work through the leadership to the best of your ability, because once you're dirty laundry hits the public airwaves, it, it's very difficult to have a truly professional conversation about because now you start to see more emotion pouring in than sometimes fact. Yep, Pauline and Doyle did a great job of summarizing too of why that's important for the society writ large, Mr. and Mrs. Civilian, and why civil relations pertain to their daily lives and not just the 1% of the military currently serving our nation. 
Yeah, you know, Mark, I, I guess as we wrap up this episode, do you have any like one last parting thought on the topic of, of civilian military relationships that, that you want our listeners to think about or better understand? I just hope that this whole uh, the Navy situation is is uh, resonating across our nation and uh, people thinking about the bigger implications of, of what this really means there. It's, and it's not just the Navy under the spotlight. It could be uh, the Air Force or Army, Marines, Coast Guard. Uh, none of the services are exempt from uh, such a situation. It's just right now the focus is on the Navy, and it's important to to you know take an understanding of what are the bigger issues that Captain Crozier w- was weighing when he decided to take the actions he did. And I don't think we know all the behind-the-scenes story on that, and hopefully that will come out in the days and weeks ahead there. Again, I've found this uh, highly unusual for a, a uh, Captain 06 commander to take the action he did, but uh, as my counterpart guy and I discussed behind the scenes there. We think there's more to the situation that we have heard in the media. You know, one thing I think that this episode has certainly made me want to do is have somewhere down in the next couple of weeks, another conversation, maybe with some additional practitioners of civilian military relationships. I'd love to get, you know, Mark Harlan or Dr. Peter Fever, Jim Golby. There's a lot of really noted individuals who study this closely because one thing we didn't really cover today, and that is the impact on civilian military relationships that occurred during the tenure of former Secretary of Defense James Mattis and the fact that you had largely seen civilian military relationships within the Pentagon turned on their head where a lot of the appointed civilian leadership were marginalized, the military members were taking outsized roles because of the speed at which Secretary Mattis wanted to move. And I really want to have that opportunity with some additional practitioners and experts to kind of you know, one, consider that, see if there's anything actually there or if it's just part of the natural ebb and flow of what happens within inside the, the walls of the Pentagon. Uh, and if there is something there, you know, what does that portend for future secretaries of defense and how those secretaries should work the civilian military relationship with the senior military leaders uh, that they serve with? Oh, yeah, that'd be great, guy. I encourage, uh, encourage us to definitely follow through with that podcast uh, in the coming weeks there. That would be fantastic. Well, on behalf of Mark and myself, thanks again for listening. This episode, we were joined by Dr. Pauline shanks Karin. She has a, a new book out called On Obedience. So if you're interested in civilian military relationships, highly recommend you check it out. You can find it on Amazon. You could also find it on the U.S. Naval Institute's book site. We were also joined by Dr. Doyle Hodges, who's the executive editor at the Texas National Security Review. He also has a phenomenal op-ed out right now about the uh, special trust and confidence that exists within the United States Navy. You can find it over at War on the Rocks. And as always, thanks for listening. 